If I were down south in my grandparents' home church, down just beyond the North Carolina line, where North Carolina and South Carolina meet. We were from South Carolina, but it was so close to North Carolina. My grandparents worshiped in North Carolina. The Cedar Creek Missionary Baptist Church. And in the beginning of service to prepare the space for the welcoming of the Spirit, to prepare the hearts and minds of the people to worship God in spirit and in truth, the Board of Deacons would have a time of devotion. And one old deacon invariably would not often stand but kneel, ask all who gathered to kneel in prayer. And the old deacon would pray a prayer, as the Baptist would say, that goes something like this. Father, I stretch my hand to thee, for no other help I know. Oh, my rose of sharing my shelter in the time of storm, my prince of peace, my hope in this harsh land, I bow before you this morning to thank you for watching over us and taking care of us. This morning you touched us and brought us out of the land of slumber, gave us another day. Thank you, Jesus. We realize that many that talked as we now talk this morning, when their names were called, they failed to answer. Their voices were hushed up in death. Their souls had taken a flight and gone back to the God that gave it. But not so with us. We are thankful the sheet we covered with was not our winding sheet. And the bed we slept on was not our cooling board. You spared us and gave us one more chance to pray. And Father, before we go further, we want to pause and thank you for forgiving our sins. Forgive all our wrongdoings. We don't deserve it, but you lengthened out our, the prickly threads of our lives and gave us another chance to pray. And Lord, for this we thank you. Now, Lord, when... I've come to the end of my journey when my praying days are done and time for me shall be no more. When these knees have bowed for the last time. When I too, like all others, must come in off the battlefield of life. When I'm through being buked and scorned. I pray for a home in glory. When I come down to the river of Jordan, hold the river still and let your servant cross over during a calm down. Father, I'll be looking for that land where Job said the wicked would cease from troubling us and our weary souls would be at rest. Over there where a thousand years is but a day in eternity, where I'll meet with loved ones and where I can sing praises to thee and I can say with the saints of old, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am free at last. Your servant's prayer. For Christ's sake. Amen. Yeah, this, this, this prayer captures the tenor and the spirit of the old deacon's prayers. I said I witnessed in my grandparents' church back in Waysboro, North Carolina. But this particular prayer you may find in the book 
by Dr. Charles Taylor in the book that's entitled Juneteenth. Yes, some of you may have been a part of services or read articles or just you were aware, as the young folks say, you woke. And you knew that Wednesday that passed was Juneteenth. It was the type of prayer that reminded us of freedom's journey. It harkens back to the Emancipation Proclamation Day when the legal proclamation that freed my foremothers and forefathers from slavery in the United States after some 250 years of slavery on January 1st, 1863. It is not uncommon for many to stop there with the story of the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln's signage of the proclamation. Yet the story doesn't end there. As I said, Wednesday was Juneteenth, and Juneteenth speaks to a new birth out of the chains of captivity. Great preacher theologian Brad Braxton says the name Juneteenth may capture the excitement those slaves felt when chains of captivity fell from their bodies and their souls and their tongues were not concerned about grammar. Newfound freedom prompted the creation of a new word, Juneteenth. And yes, Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration of the freeing of slaves in the United States and dates back to June 1865, the 14th to be exact. And it was on the 14th of that year when the Union soldiers reached the state of Texas with the good news that the Civil War was finally over. The soldiers were there to enforce the new law of emancipation, the law that the slaves were now free. Yes, it was a delayed celebration, an enforcement of freedom that had been in effect for over two years. Yes, you see, they didn't have the forms of communication that we have available to us now. Some time ago, beyond a carrier, you'd be happy you had a telephone with a dial. Amen, somebody. You remember the dial. That's right. Had homes that were built with a special nook for your telephone with the dial, and you'd pull up a chair and sit and dial and chat a while. And then we accelerated our communication media, and we had all kinds of ways to reach folk via email. Well, we had fax before email, and now there's social media. Yes, you can reach people in a nanosecond now, but then it had taken over two years for those in Texas, another state in the South, to learn that they were indeed free. And yes, you may be wondering, how do we get to this today? Well, I think it's relevant for all that is going on in our societal discourse. There's a lot of energy and conversation. I don't know if you're following it, but perhaps you are. And, and it's of a great interest to you, and I think it's consistent with the text for this morning, not only the epistle, and yes, we see resonances even in the gospel. And if you look carefully enough and critically enough, you may find it even in 1 Kings. But here, Paul did not have a grand plan for social justice. He was not interested in trying to reform Roman laws, institutions, or culture with respect to slave-holding gender roles or religious observance. 
rather, Paul, was focused on creating communities that were outposts of life in Christ, assemblies of people relating to one another in a way that was in accord with Christ's desire and hope for God's people. Paul's expectations were wrapped in a moral urgency that takes us back to Juneteenth, I would suggest. His use of metaphors to explain God's new thing at work among God's people helps us to see the reason there is an immigrant heritage month, which is also recognized in June. As one scholar knows, what are the consequences of the equality of all people before God, not only in churches, but in the world that is proper object of the good news of salvation? I believe Paul's focus here was potentially threefold. His foci were one, calling people into a dynamic relationship with God. What does that mean? Causing people to find in God a relationship that was meaningful, substantive, and also gave guidance for their own moral agency. Two, inviting us into intentional communities that move us beyond constricting gender, racial, and ethnic norms. Well, I think Christ Church is a perfect example of that. That we intentionally gather here as a community of faith to move beyond those constricting gender roles that we've been assigned throughout our culture and history and our racial norms and ethnic norms that have confined us. Yes, I think that's partly what Christ Church does very well on Sunday mornings and when we gather at other times. Intentional. Intentional in community because in religious education, some scholars would argue against using the language church family because a family bespeaks that which you are born into and you have no choice in the matter. There is no agency on your part into the family you're born into, into choosing that family, rather. But here, I believe Paul is talking about, again, those who have intentionally come together to say we like each other enough and we love God more that we believe we can worship together. We can do some great work for Christ. We can do some mission work. We can pray together. And we can help encourage one another in the faith. Am I right? And I think third, one of the final things I think we can look to here is Paul establishing freedom and full agency and respect for all God's people. I think that's a third point here that I glean from this text that I think you might see this with me, that here, as it is written, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. And then he goes on and says, After faith has been revealed, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Yes, we must admit that at the time it was written, Paul's letter ushered in a radical reordering of human relationships as he understood them before God. That was then, you might say. And naturally, by 21st century standards of democracy, this doesn't seem radical enough. 
Yet today, Christ Church, if we are to understand ourselves as clothed with Christ, the one who risks himself entirely for God's purposes is to apprehend our full responsibility as heirs of God, people with both the grace and responsibility to discern the implications of Paul's vision in increasingly widening circles of human relationships. When we do this, then we are truly preparing the world for the fullness of God's presence. The power of God did not stop on the day that God raised Jesus from the dead, nor the day at Antioch when the Holy Spirit moved, giving birth to the church. No, the power of God is still moving to bring about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And the question is, are you a part of God's freedom plan? Are you a part of the freedom project today? If we are serious about this question, if we're serious today, church, we would not hesitate to participate fully in the ways encouraged by Paul for the faithful. Yes, we would be eager to stand and do that which is written in the scriptures. We are all heirs according to the promises. God's promises are not withheld from anyone, Paul writes. Anyone. And isn't it something that sometimes it seems the most judgment comes out of the church? Comes from within the church? Comes from the people who comprise the church? But here, Paul is writing to us to suspend all judgment. Get away from those things that held you bound before, if you truly want to be a part of God's freedom plan. I had a friend at Union Seminary. Her name was Jennifer Harvey, an ordained Baptist minister. At the time, she was a PhD student and teaching assistant in Christian social ethics at Union. And Jennifer was cool. I mean, really cool. As a young African-American or, uh, seeking ordination in the Baptist church, unordained at the time, Jennifer loaned me her books for Baptist polity. And anybody here who's ever been in college can appreciate that. You can save a few hundred dollars for some books. Amen, somebody. you grateful, right? I was so indebted to Jennifer, and she shared her books with me for the class for the whole semester. I appreciated that. But what I was most impressed with was her own prophetic witness and posture on the social gospel. You see, Jennifer was cool. At the time, she was one of the coolest white girls I knew. Jennifer, as I said, was an ordained Baptist herself, but Jennifer was a little renegade. She had her body piercings and maybe a tattoo or two, and just really cool, her black. She didn't look anything like all the ordained people I saw in the South. But mind you, I barely saw a female ordained minister until I was getting ready to get, get on to seminary myself. I didn't grow up with that image before me, and so Jennifer just kind of flipped all of that in my mind, it reoriented my thinking, changed my entire perspective on what this could mean. And so she was a little laid back, so it seemed, on the exterior, but Jennifer was very, 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 very critical in her thinking, very smart. And so again, she was the one white person I knew writing seriously about disrupting white supremacy and wrote a book on it. That's in the title, Disrupting White Supremacy. Something like, subtitle, what white people need to know. Something like they'll need to do. Well, in 2014, 
her book, she's on the faculty at Drake University, and she teaches there, and her book in 2014, Dear White Christians, this is the title, Dear White Christians, for those still longing for racial reconciliation, was published. And in it, Jennifer writes, slavery alone is reason to engage in a serious conversation about reparations, but the ongoing, active legacies that have impeded the realization of anything approaching equity, let alone justice, make not engaging in a serious conversation unconscionable. I had to take to mind seriously what Jennifer's writing was all about this week. As I prayed and pondered the text for this week, it was immediate to me that Juneteenth, front and center in my mind and my thinking, some of you may have seen Bishop Michael Curry of the Episcopal Church give a message, and yeah, we can, and I'm not taking anything from Bishop Curry because he's a dynamic preacher, but we can keep talking about love and being one and sing kumbaya and nothing ever come of it. And at some point, we have to get up off of our knees from praying and do something. And if we would just take the spirit and the power and the agency that the spirit gives to us, when we get up, as the old deacon would pray, off bended knee, and we submit ourselves to walking, putting one foot in front of the other, in faith, God would send the Holy Spirit to come down and do something. Something. So like I said, this is... I find interestingly, of course, enough to say Immigrant Heritage Month. We celebrate Juneteenth. And it was interesting that, yes, more than a century and a half ago, one reporter wrote, after the end of the Civil War, a black man had to instruct members of the United States Congress on the rudiments of slavery and its legacies. Thank God for the writing for Tennessee Coates. We don't want to discuss America's original sin because it's too painful. Well, I know and stand firmly in the knowledge that I am a descendant of slaves. That has never bothered me. It's added to my character. It's added to my faith and my faithfulness. Virtually all of the racial disparities of which we live today Jennifer Harvey writes, can be shown as originating in or linking back in a substantive way to institutionalized slavery. She goes on to talk about, yes, what happens when the Japanese-American survivors of internment receive reparation, other racial groups. But find it difficult to talk about African-Americans having been enslaved. Yes, this still marks the 400th year that the first slaves arrived here on this soil, and not by choice. We weren't taking a vacation, although I'm ready for one now. That wasn't the goal. It was purely economics. And yes, while I was reared in a Baptist church, it wasn't Southern Baptist. No, the Southern Baptist Convention, a denomination founded to preserve the right of white missionaries to hold black slaves and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to black and brown people abroad. I found it interesting that even when you find that in writing, to say to hold black slaves as if any other group were enslaved. Not here. As if any other group had been lynched and mob beaten and scorned, not here. As if any other group had to experience Jim and Jane Crowism 
even after slavery had ended, to still be enslaved. Not here. And yet you don't think we're worth any reparations. No, nothing is due to that continuing legacy of America's original sin. I think Paul has a lot to say on that today. And as I examine again this text in the epistle, you know, Paul wrote this before his great treatise to the community of Rome. This came before that heavily doctrinal book, the book of Romans. This is where we need to sit and wrestle today and ask if we are truly a part of God's freedom plan. Because not only did Wednesday mark Juneteenth, on this past Monday, the day after we celebrated Father's Day, two little girls in South Carolina had to be reminded that yet another year has gone by without their father. It was the anniversary of the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina. The Emmanuel Nine, as they become known, yes, being led by the Reverend Clemente Pickney, Congressman of South Carolina, and yes, the others who joined him, those eight names, Cynthia Hurd, the Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Tywanza Sanders, Ethel Lance, Susie Jackson, DePayne Middleton Doctor, and the Reverend Daniel Simmons, and Myra Thompson, ranging in age from 26 years to 87 years old. And two little girls on Monday had to be reminded yet again what it feels like when there are some who are not participating in God's freedom plan. They don't believe what Paul has written because they don't understand and comprehend the word of God. But it's something for us to digest today. It's something when we consider how these hate crimes all around continue. But for black bodies and brown bodies, we felt this scorch for too long. And Paul says, in that final verse for our consideration today, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So not only am I a part of God's freedom plan, working, keeping my hands on the plows my ancestors would sing to bring about that freedom work, I do know that I'm a part of God's kingdom, a joint heir to the promise. Do you? If you're part of God's freedom plan, you wouldn't, you wouldn't preserve it only for yourself, but you would work to make sure that all of God's creation would feel that liberty and freedom, that all of God's creation would know their value and their worth, that all of God's creation, whether in the church or outside of the church, is worthy of God's love. Again, the question remains, are you a part of God's freedom plan?